0: Good morning, how is everyone doing this morning? Good. I know we're enjoying our second week of having donuts and fellowship breakfast back. A a lot of uh, very excited children running into the gym after our early service. Uh, A couple of quick announcements. One, this is our second week continuing our summer Bible study series on the Gospel of Luke. And as such, there is a handout in the back on the Bible card if anyone would like. Um, It's just a printout of what uh, I'm anticipating we cover, but you can use it as a note sheet or just uh, for your own personal uh, study or to take home with you. is on that back corner by the Bible uh, cart with that before we begin worship or uh, not worship but Bible study this morning let us begin with a word of prayer Uh, dear Lord we come to you today remembering uh, your son that he is the center of what we do as a church that he is the center of our faith that he is the center of our life in his name We pray, Lord, that you would allow us to keep Christ at the center of all we do, and that all we would do would be good, holy, and pleasing to your holy will. And we pray all these things in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, So last week, Pastor Thomas got you guys started a little bit with uh, the introduction to the book of Luke. And today we're going to dive a little bit more just straight, almost straight into the text. And so we begin with Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 18. And I should note a a special welcome not only uh, to those uh, here in the gym, but also those listening on KFUO, AM 850 in the St. Louis area and worldwide on KFUO.org. So we look at the gospel of Luke chapter one, beginning at verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Uh, Now, before we get too far into that, there is, I found something a little bit interesting. Does anyone have a King James version with them or the NASB? What name is in verse 18 there and says Zechariah? Zacharias, exactly. And you may be wondering, well, how? that seems like a pretty big difference, Zacharias versus Zechariah. Zachari- uh, they are derivative of the same name. In Greek, it is quite literally transliterated, but I'm sure you can see there in the Nestleon, right? Zach, uh, Zacharias. So if you transliterate it, it is Zacharias, but Zechariah is also just fine. We'll see that with Mary as well. Uh, coming up in the Annunciation, uh, the angel Gabriel, when he announces that she will be with child says "Uh, blessed are you Miriam quite literally in the Greek now does that mean she's not married no that's again there's a difference between transliteration and translation so when Zechariah said to the angel how shall I know this for I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years what what that question to the angel what does that remind you of perhaps from the Old Testament Yeah, Abraham. In fact, if you go to Genesis 17, and we'll probably be turning a little bit uh, in our Bibles today, so if you have your phone out or you have your Bible um, in front of you, go to Genesis chapter 17. And you look at Genesis 17, verse 17. We read... Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? It's interesting, when God establishes His new covenant with His people through His Son, there's some familiar means. And one of those is the one who would prepare the way of the Lord, the one who would prepare the way in the wilderness for Christ, is born to an advanced in years <laughs> barren woman. And when God established his covenant with Abraham, how did he tell Abraham he would seal that covenant? Well, this time next year, if you remember back to Genesis 17, God's messenger says to Abraham, your wife, who is barren, who is 90, will be with child. Yes. Sarai, yeah. Yes, that's not the same kind of thing. That's actually an instruction that God gives Abraham. You shall no longer call her Sarai, but Sarah. Um, And both those names are derived from the same sort of root, um, and that is meaning princess. But yeah, that's a little similar. Again, and we'll see this um, with many names throughout the... The New Testament and the Old Testament, you know, Yesun would be Jesus in the Greek. Uh, it's, it's translated Jesus. If you wanted to transliterate it, which is just take those letters and put, um, what would I guess be Roman letters on the, you know, Roman equival- equivalents, you would actually get something like Yesun. But... Um, There's nothing wrong. I just wanted to point it out because there is some discrepancy. And if you have an NASB, I think NASB and King James are the two that translate it Zacharias versus Zechariah. But again, they're not talking about two different people. Same person, same guy. All right. Um, And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you to bring you this good news. It's interesting here is that the angel Gabriel, this is his second, um, I guess you want to say, second time that he makes himself known. The first is in the book of Daniel, to Daniel, uh, helping him understand a dream and a vision that he had had. Here Gabriel uh, appears to Zechariah. And immediately when Zechariah says, how shall this be? He gives his own place of authority that I stand in the presence of God. Now, why might that be significant? Especially to an Israelite. Well, if it's from God, it's, it's real. Uh, what had happened when someone had been in the presence of God before? They die? Yes. Or Moses, what happens when he comes down from Mount Sinai? His face shone so much that it, it really uh, freaked out a lot of the, the people. Right? It's, a, it's not like an ordinary person can stand and say, I am able to stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. That word, I was sent, um, it's a reminder, I think a great one. we went over this in the book of Acts in our Living Way study quite a bit. That God sends out his messengers. An angel angel in Greek, it's the word for messenger. That he sends his messengers. And to be sent is uh, to be apostello in Greek, which is where we get the word apostle. That the apostles themselves were then sent by God to speak the good news. And while it is a different word of good news that they were called uh, to speak, I think it's a, a pretty good parallel here that Gabriel, what is God's messenger sent to Zechariah to do to proclaim good news, and what are the apostles as God's messengers sent to do proclaim the good news? Uh, And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Of course, this is exactly what happens. Zechariah goes mute until the birth of John. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out... A little bit of feedback there. Let's try that. There we go. When he came out, uh, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. I don't want to draw too strong a parallel here, but I do think it's interesting to highlight uh, one of the interesting ways God works for his people (laughs) And that is when there are doubts, or when they uh, look, for example, for a sign, or when they just simply are in his presence. Things happen that are almost, um, they, they lose their senses, so to speak. And what I was reminded of immediately with Zechariah is, if you think, what happened to Paul when Jesus appeared to him? Struck blind, right? Zechariah could not talk until it was time for these things to be fulfilled. Paul could not see until he did what God had said. And they realized he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. I always thought it would be a fun kind of children's message one day to have the kids, what signs do you think he made? Because <laughs> you can imagine how hard it would be to describe the vision and what had been told to you, that you, an elderly man, are going to have a child with your elderly wife, and now you can't speak, and there was this angel, and he was Gabriel, that same Gabriel that appeared to Daniel, and you can't describe it. I, I just wonder how long it took before he got frustrated and gave up trying to make signs, explaining, uh, explaining what he had seen. And when the time of, of service, when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. And I don't want to spend too much time on that time of service, but we talked last week, or you guys heard last week from Pastor Thomas, that what uh, Zechariah was doing to burning incense in the temple, you were only able to do as a priest once in your life. So again, that time has now ended, and he goes back to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived... And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, "Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when He looked on me uh, to take away my reproach among the people." Now, there's a couple of interesting things there in those two verses. One, she stays hidden. What, why might you think? Why might she do that? We're going to hear the Annunciation where Mary goes away for three months, and perhaps that one's a little more understandable, but why, why would Elizabeth stay hidden? Not be public about what is happening to her. Yep. Yeah, it's, it's an unexplainable reality. You who are barren. Well, actually, I'm not barren. What? No! She didn't want the ridicule and even the further questions, maybe even the mocking. And that highlights then the second point, which is that uh, the Lord has taken away my reproach among the people. In those days, to be barren uh, was a great reproach. It was an insult. It was a shameful, shameful thing in the culture of the people, not in the eyes of God, in the culture of the people. I want to be very clear there. This isn't the only time that someone is reproached for being barren. You can think not only uh, to Sarah and, and the struggle she had in conceiving, but then also Rachel in Genesis. If you turn to Genesis 30, uh, Rachel talks about that. Her reproach when she is able to finally bear a son is taken away. And the one I'm always uh, reminded of is in 2nd, or 1 Samuel chapter 1 with Hannah. And I'll have us turn to that. 1 Samuel chapter 1. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her. her. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. Now I read that a little bit out of order to make a little bit more sense uh, with our point in English. But because the Lord had closed her womb, because she was barren, her rival would, use, would provoke her, would ridicule her. It would have been um, quite literally a, a daily reminder every time that Elizabeth went out that she had not been able to bear a son. And like I said, in that culture, and this is, again, not in the eyes of God, but in that culture, this was a great insult. You did something to deserve this. Now, of course, that is not what God says. That is what sinful people made it in the culture. But that didn't mean it hurt any less for Elizabeth. And so when she talks about that her reproach has been taken away, uh, in some ways there's a, a, a typology of our own deliverance, that our own reproach has been removed by Christ, our shame. And this wouldn't have been... Um, while it, it is always a joyous occasion, this is even, there's, it's kind of hard for us to envision what this would have meant for Elizabeth in today's culture. What sort of relief, what sort of safety, what sort of redemption this would have for her. So I'm going to stop there. Uh, does anyone have any questions on the last bit of this section of chapter 1? Before we get into the Annunciation. yes. Yeah. That, that's a really good question. Was it Gabriel who initiated Zechariah being mute, or was it uh, did God know, you know, kind of tell Gabriel, here's how it's going to go? Uh, the reality is, we don't have that exactly in our text, and so it's, it's dangerous to speculate either way. But we do know that as a result of his unbelief, and that's why I think this is a really great passage to read right before the Annunciation, because you have this compare and contrast and yet direct similarities between what happens, the the two miraculous conceptions that happen in Luke chapter 1. John the Baptist's conception is miraculous. She's advanced in years. Uh, Zechariah is advanced in years. And so, too, the Annunciation, Christ's conception, is miraculous as Mary will point out, but the reaction from Zechariah and the reaction from Mary are two different things, and Gabriel even points that out. So there is an aspect that his unbelief or his disbelief that this would happen uh, result, was the reason that he was told he's unable to speak. Now, God is God. Did he foreknow that would happen? Yes, he knows all things, but I don't Uh, to answer your question we don't have in in the text did gabriel you know do it of his own power or did god tell him here's how it's going to you know go step by step you know first you're going to tell him then he's going to disbelieve then you're going to have to mute him and you know yes Well, oh, then that's a great point. That, that it is not the, the angel, it would not be Gabriel's power of his own volition, but rather that God was using Gabriel in that moment. Just like the apostles, when they were able to perform miracles or signs or wonders or Pentecost, we just celebrated Pentecost, where everyone thought these guys are crazy, they must be drunk because we're hearing them talk in all these different languages. No, that is the power of God working through the hands, through the mouths, through the words of his servants, the words of his messengers. Yeah. So the question is brought out, is there significance that Gabriel is mentioned by name here versus just being, you know, it being said, an angel of the Lord came to Elizabeth. I think one significance uh, is that Gabriel is mentioned by name in the Old Testament. So that he, he comes to Daniel and to explain, and it's mentioned by name, I'm the angel Gabriel, and here's what you saw. I think you... Again, we don't worship the angels, but I think proper reverence for Gabriel's position is, and his stature, so to speak, is, uh, can be drawn from the fact that not only is he named, but even more directly, he stands in the presence of God. That was really the basis of his authority. I think here, perhaps, the name is indicative of, I'm the one who came to your ancestor Daniel, way back when, that you priest of the Israelites would know very well Um, so that would be I I think really the two sides of it one he was named specifically in the Old Testament but two his his real claim to authority or claim to be able to make such an audacious statement as an elderly person who's barren to conceive is that he stands in the presence of God alright oh Yes. Yes, that's a, that's a great point. That, it, it's that pat, There's a, that connection in time that not only was Gabriel uh, with Daniel, but now he's with Zechariah. And again, that goes back kind of to I wonder what signs he tried to make. Because you know, I'm sure he tried to explain, you know, it's Gabriel, you know, the Gabriel, the angel that Daniel. Um, but no, that's exactly right. All right, let's move on then to the annunciation and this is really I think one of my favorite uh, few uh, verses especially during Advent when, when we, we cover this and that was this last year, it's the reading right before Christmas in series B of the lectionary and it's the angel Gabriel's announcement to Mary so first in verse 26 in the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth Now, there's an interesting point to make here, which is if you read this just starting at verse 26, what month might you anticipate that sixth month referring to? The month of, without reading what came before it, the sixth month of what? The year. Very good, yes. Yeah, the calendar year. However, when you think about what just came before this, what is that sixth month actually referring to? Elizabeth. So six months into Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. And you're going to see this construction uh, used multiple times by Luke. It's kind of a little bit of a grammatical thing. and. Uh, A little bit more of a classical construction, but uh, to a city whose name was Nazareth. Now you're going to see in the the verses following, uh, to a man whose name was Joseph, and to a virgin whose name was Mary. So Luke uses this very similar uh, structure over and over and over in these uh, 13 verses here, but... Uh, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. Now there's something kind of unique about the word here in the Greek for virgin. It can be both a young woman who is not betrothed or it can mean the more literal English sense of the word. And so this by itself, just that, that one verse by itself, does not allow us by itself to mean uh, that she was a virgin in that moment. However, I don't before you get the pitchforks out, <laughs> if you wait a couple of verses, you'll see that she very quickly, very quickly explains in her explanation to Gabriel. Um, Her question is, this can't happen, not because God can't do it, but because I've never known a man. We'll cover that. That's more in the Greek. The English translates both of those instances, both this word, parthenon, or or parthenoi, um, as virgin. It could be young woman or virgin. But then we'll cover the Greek a little bit later as we get further in. Uh, And he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. Now that phrase, O favored one, what do you think that means about Mary? She was chosen. It's not that she was at this moment holier than any other woman in Israel. But that she was the one whom God bestowed his favor She was chosen. That's a great way to put it. That she was the one whom God bestowed his favor. He did the choosing. In verse 29, she was greatly troubled at the saying. (laughs) Kind of the obvious response, right? (laughs) An angel appears out of nowhere. Greetings, the Lord's with you. And again, in the Greek more literally, it's in a state of being troubled. She became uh, as one who was troubled. This was her demeanor, her whole uh, disposition was of one who was troubled. And she tried to discern what sort of greeting this may be. Uh, Dr. Velso, I know many of you know so well, has a great way to translate this, and it 's kind of, "What in the world just did I just hear?" And that's really pretty accurate, even in the Greek. What is going on? And it's totally understandable. And this is why so often when someone in the Bible encounters an angel, what's their response? Fear. Afraid. Now, it's not the Hallmark card of a little cute angel with a big smile on his face. They're always scared and sometimes scared out of their mind. Uh, or worried they're going to die in that moment. It's not just like, oh, this is unusual, but this is a terrifying and clearly not not normal sort of happening. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Oh, and I should go up real quick to verse 27, uh, where we read uh, the virgin's name was Mary. Again, I mentioned this earlier, but in the Greek, it's Mariam. Again, that does not mean that Mary is incorrect, but there's a difference between a transliteration and a translation when it comes to names. So, Maria, Mariam, Mary, not three different names, It's, it's one name. That's, uh, that has, it's, it, there's not three different people they're talking about. It is all one person, but you may hear it three different ways. All right, um, so back down uh, to verse 30. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Do not be afraid, you wonder how many of us uh, can hear those words and think of times in our lives where we've needed that. Um, but this must have been just such a surreal moment of time. Do not be afraid because you have found favor with God. Now, what do you th- what, what, when you hear that word, you have found favor, again, we, we've highlighted this a little bit, but what is Gabriel saying about Mary? Mary? God has something special for her. She's special. This is a little different than when, for example, God tells Noah he has been found to have favor with him. Why? Because Noah was more righteous than the people of his day. Mary here, this is a passive. God is choosing you. You are special. I am using you. You are the one whom I will bestow this grace, this favor And, of course, this is how God works time and time again in the lives of his people. It's not that he looks at the most deserving and picks them. But usually it's just the opposite. Usually most people look around and say, why on earth would God choose that guy? Or in this case, you know, that young lady. Think about the disciples themselves. Most... Learned scholars of rabbinical teachings and of the Torah would be prime candidates to be apostles of Jesus. Who does he take? Fishermen, tax collectors. We even read at one point that Mary Magdalene was one who used to have a demon. Not exactly the people that you would pick out of a lineup. And so I want to be careful here in that we do fully and and truly say uh, Mary, we hold her to a high regard. But again, it's not because Mary herself is better than anyone else of her contemporaries, or anyone else, but rather because God chose her. And we'll see uh, Elizabeth's proclamation to her, and it is true, blessed are you. Mother of my Lord, and we should not shy away from the fact that Mary is a very special lady, that she was chosen directly. I think if I remember, oh, I should have double checked this, but I don't believe we have a, a single St. Mary's Lutheran church in our entire synod. And that's okay, I'm not saying we need to go rename churches, right? But it's a reminder that we, we don't ignore who Mary is, that she was the one that God bestowed his favor upon to carry his son into the world. Just like we don't shy away from saying that Paul was specially chosen as an apostle on the road to Damascus, Mary was specially chosen as a young lady to carry and to bring into this world God's plan of salvation, God himself in the flesh, in Christ Jesus. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called son of the most high. He will be great. In the Greek, it's megas, mega, big deal. (laughs) And as we've, if you've heard the sermon today, as you know, we talked today specifically that Jesus is the center. He is the big deal. He's the center of all we do. All that our church does, he is the center of our faith life. He is the center of everything. But here, this, this word magos has a couple of, I think, connotations, both of which are very uh, appropriate in thinking of how, how should we think of Jesus as great. Well, one, there's a, the, uh, to, in regards to his importance. <laughs> right? And then there's in regards to what he does. And those are two sides of the same coin, but I think... They, uh, they're a little different enough to point it out that he is great in terms of his significance and great in terms of what he does. He will be called, and again, here's that construction again, and he will be called son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. I told you we're going to turn back a few times today. So we're going to go back to Isaiah chapter 9. And if you go to Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, these words... Uh, well, actually, we'll start, at, we'll, we'll start at verse 1. These words will seem very familiar to you, and you can see why they'll be so familiar, uh, especially when we're considering we're talking about the Annunciation here and the birth of Jesus. Yeah. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel in the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end." And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. When Gabriel makes this proclamation to Mary, they would immediately start thinking or she would immediately have started thinking about the prophet Well, maybe after the shock wore off. (laughs) We'll acknowledge there may have been some shock involved. Um, But once, you know, that if he is the Son of the Most High, if the Lord is going to give to him the throne of his father Jacob to reign over the house of Jacob forever, that of his kingdom there will be no end. This is the one we've been waiting for. This is the Messiah. This is the Savior. And so, uh, immediately, Mary kind of knows that while this is strange, it has now almost been taken up another level. That not only will he be great, not only will he be the Son of the Most High, but if you have any doubt of who this child is going to be, he is going to be the one that I promised to send to establish the throne, the rule and reign the kingdom of God forever. That unlike all the earthly kingdoms, even unlike your own uh, temporary, temporal, earthly kingdom that you had as Israelites that was destroyed by the Babylonians, that you're now being crushed under Roman oppression, even though those things all end, this kingdom will reign forever. In verse 34, and Mary said to the angel, how is this to be? Since I am a virgin, and I'd mentioned this earlier, this is not the same word that appears earlier in Luke 1. The literal Greek translation is, uh, how is this? Because I've never known a man. Of course, just to be clear, it's not that she's never known a man in what we think of there, but this is the sense of in marital relations. I've never known a man in that way. She was betrothed to Joseph. She had a father. She knew men, (laughs) you know, but not in the, this is a pretty direct sense. And so that's why in the English, the simplest way to translate that, instead of going through all that explanation, is just to say virgin. But I think it's important to note that um, you may hear people even mention, well, the word for virgin might, uh, can also mean just young lady. And this is something that people will sometimes say to refute the claim of a virgin birth. And that is 100% true. (laughs) But Mary doesn't use that word. Mary makes it very clear. How is this going to be? Because I have never known a man in a marital sense. Yes, between verses 27... Yeah, the question was, could I clarify once again? um, Between the use of uh, the word virgin... Parthenon in uh, verse 27, Uh, Parthenu in in this case, and then the uh, use of the word in verse 34, which is not, again, that word Parthenu, but rather the question, because I have never known a man. How can this be because I have never known a man? Yes, bud. I have never. I. Present. Are you, yeah, I have, I guess, you're right, it is, I, I'm not, yeah, exactly, you're right, it is the president, I, I'm not, I don't know, yes. But the sense, and I guess probably it's the part of our historical language, is she is re- relaying to the angel that this impossibility is not because she's a young woman, but because she has never known, uh, and she does not know currently, because she's betrothed a man in that way. Yeah, it's not just a past thing, but a present, a currently, uh, kind of a state of, you know, who I am sort of thing. And so this is why, the reason I highlight this again, is not uh, to call into question any of our, our teachings or anything like that whatsoever, but to actually strengthen it, that you may hear some people say, well, that word for virgin could be young woman, and you can say, well, that's true, but Mary gets pretty specific with the angel. And says, no, this, how is this going to happen? Because I do not know a man. State of my yes, yes. So you're right. It's not just a, a past tense, but it's a present tense and, and continual, uh, continuing, I should say, uh, in that moment. So this is in her direct present moment with the angel, the angel Gabriel. All right. Any other questions on that? All right cool, we got through that one. <laughs> um, in verse 35. and the angel answered her, "The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. Child to be born will be called holy. that is set apart. That's what it means that something is holy. It is set apart. It is special. The Son of God. Now, what, uh, what do you think of There's a couple of options, or there are a couple of answers that I think make a lot of sense here. When you hear that word overshadow, that God's presence will overshadow Mary. What are some other examples of either similar language or similar sort of concepts within scripture look after okay Jesus by Jerusalem if you go just a few chapters into Luke into Luke chapter 9 go into Luke chapter 9 and you go to the transfiguration account. You go to verse 34, Luke 9 verse 34. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them and they were afraid as they entered the cloud and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. I'm not, and I'm not trying to make too direct of a comparison, but just to point out that when God's presence overshadows you, especially in the Gospel of Luke, it means He is there. <laughs> and so I'm always reminded of the transfiguration account, and we, we're not given a direct account of what that looked like for Mary. You know, we, don't, we don't have after the Annunciation then what that means. However... Um, I just think it's interesting that that overshadowing occurs both here in Luke 1 and then again in that transfiguration, when they see uh, the glory of who it is that they are following, that he was transfigured before them and his face shone. Yep. And then the pillar, yes, that was the the Old Testament example I was thinking of, that the pillar, uh, the the. Fire um, by night and the cloud by day—that the Israelites followed in the Exodus. All right, verse thirty-six. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. You notice how different Gabriel's response is to kind of the same question? How is this going to happen? With Zechariah, he says, well, you're going to be mute, and you better hope it happens, because you're not going to say anything until after these things come to pass. And of course, it does happen. But with Mary, what does Gabriel point out? And he specifically does not mention that she did not believe, but rather, as she asks this question, he answers, and then points her to her her relative, Elizabeth. If you want proof that anything God says can happen, well, then go to your relative Elizabeth, who is barren, because she's in the sixth month of her pregnancy. For nothing will be impossible with God. That word, that phrase, "nothing will be impossible with God," or "with God, all things are possible." Those. A derivative of that phrase occurs three times. Once here. Does anyone remember another time where that's used in the Bible? And this is why I think this is such a cool section because it connects it back not only to Elizabeth but back to Abraham and Sarah. That with God all things are possible. Yes, nothing, and I'm going to go into the Greek just a little bit because it's, again, one of those phrases that in the Greek is very wooden. It doesn't It sound very very uh, readable, I'll put it that way, in English. And so thinking of it either all things are possible or nothing is impossible is uh, both correct. But then there's a third time, I want to make sure I don't forget this, and I think it's a really interesting. So we have the two accounts of impossible pregnancies but then there's a third time that Jesus himself actually uses this phrase. Not rebuilding the temple, but when his disciples are greatly troubled because he has just told them it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to be, enter the kingdom of heaven, to which they, get, they become greatly troubled and say, well, then who can be saved? Who's good enough for salvation? And Jesus' response is, With man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. But Steve, I wanted to address your question. You said your translation, I believe the ESV has it that way. For nothing will be impossible uh, with God. And the the quite literal wooden Greek is, uh, there is nothing that God, uh, there is no word or saying or deed that God does not have the power to do. Yeah. Yeah, a little bit. A little different sense of the word to be. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but there is nothing uh, that God, no word of God, that he does not have the power to do. Now, why I think it's interesting that the, in Greek it's literally there is no word that God cannot do. Uh, What did the angel Gabriel say in verse 20 to Zechariah? Because you did not believe my words. Uh, We are reminded, I think, in both the account of uh, Zechariah... And the foretelling of the conception of John the Baptist and in the Annunciation here to Mary uh, that God's Word is performative. God's Word does exactly what it says it will do. God's Word is not empty promises. God's Word does not just go forth and sometimes come to fruition. But God does exactly what he says he's going to do. Now, for us, perhaps that seems pretty understandable with this instance, because we know what comes next. We know that Jesus was born. He did uh, live, die, was buried, suffered, rose again on the third day. But why I think it's important for us to remember that there is no word that God is unable to do, is because how many times do we run into our own doubts, (laughs) our own misgivings, or even... (laughs) Uh, moments where we think God must be wrong about something because it's turning out so poorly. And I'm always reminded that, well, if God can say this to Mary, it is certainly true for the rest of His Word as well, that there is no word, there is no saying, there is no deed that God does not have the power to do. But that's a really awkward, wooden way of saying it, so that's why they say, with God, nothing's impossible. So, it makes sense. It actually does make a lot of sense when you're thinking about readability and translation. Uh, yes? That's a, that's a great question. I, so the question is, how does the, the word here relate to john one and certainly there's a lot um, and john especially when you hear word he in the identity that's why he starts that way in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god his use of logos in john one is a very specific and in the rest of his epistles and in the gospels is a very specific reference to jesus now the word and the other gospels can also be just a saying you know when Jesus said these words or when the d- apostles spoke these words it can it can be, or this word uh, and again when it's translated just word it's not like it's just the word you know amazing and just one single word but it's a, it's a saying it's an idea that's a, no saying a collection of words you know like I'd have like to have a word with you over here is not I'm going to say one word to you but often well usually not just one word yeah okay. That's a great point, too, that it's rhema, which is more of a saying, or what has been spoken, uh, versus Logos. But again, I think, uh, what is the point of Gabriel's specificity? That there is nothing that you just heard, Mary, that God does not have the power to do. And if you want proof of that, well, go visit your cousin Elizabeth, which he's about to do. <laughs> Uh, and Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And here it is, Rhema again. But as you point out, let it be to me according to the word of you. <laughs> Ta Ramah Su. Your word. And the angel departed from her. What an amazing confession of faith Mary displays there. Doesn't it, well, doesn't even think about it. <laughs> I wonder how many of us would maybe pause for a half second before we say, let it be to me according to what you just said. Knowing uh, what great scorn what would be said, not knowing how Joseph would react, not knowing how uh, that conversation at dinner was going to go with her parents. (laughs) And yet, she does not even waver, let it be to me according to to your word. I am the servant of the Lord. All right. So that uh, gets us through the annunciation. Are there any other questions on that section? Yes, Pastor spring Yes, it is. That's a great point. Uh, I don't believe there are any in the United States, (laughs) but uh, as uh, Paul rightly pointed out, where where Luther did his preaching in Wittenberg, uh, that parish was named, in fact, St. Mary's. Um, Yes? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, that that gets us off into a whole discussion on the Reformation, which we (laughs) don't But yes, of of course... um, as we confessed last Sunday with the Athanasian Creed, we believe in the Catholic Church, the little c Catholic that we have, But yes, that was a, a, but his parish, you know, he, knows he didn't change the name of it. I think that's maybe your point, uh, Pastor Brian, that, you know, he, he's not like he said, well, now that uh, I'm here, we're going to change it to St. Mark's or something, but Yeah. <laughs> Yes, that that is a fantastic point. Um. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I'll, I'll relay that for those who are listening on the radio. That with it's such an interesting parallel or a, a, an opposite that happens. Where with Elizabeth, it's well, it's too late for that to happen. I surely can't conceive. And then with Mary, it's too soon for that to happen. I surely can't conceive. And as you pointed out. Uh, That it's with God, nothing is impossible. Uh, No, and I love that it's back to back like that because I think it does highlight again one the the fact that uh, this isn't the first time, even with Elizabeth, that God has done this. But what is God's statement about His covenant? Especially, you think about Jeremiah, uh, that I'm establishing a new covenant, that I'm not just doing what I used to do for your fathers, but that I'm doing something new, something that will be unending. So, no, that's a, a fantastic point, yes. Yeah, it is a future. It's Adunatesai, uh, which that ending, so it'd be a future, that will be. There's nothing... Um, that God does not have the power, will not be able to. Maybe that's a way to translate it. There is no word that God will not be able to do. Uh, that it, it is a future, because you're right, it's not at this moment. Just like with Elizabeth, in that proclamation to Zechariah, we read it happened at a later, uh, after, after these, this day, or after these days. So that's a very good point. All right. Let's briefly, we've got about three minutes, so let's start Mary's visit to Elizabeth, and we'll see. We're definitely not going to get to the Magnificat, um, Mary's song today, but we can kind of start uh, with verse 39 here. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. Now, you notice it says, with haste. Uh, Even in her confession of faith, there's still that acknowledgement that this was going to be a scandalous thing. And so she left in a hurry. Uh, Not to get away, not to shy away, but to go, one, to where the angel told her, her relative, this uh, relative advanced in years, was to be with child. Some of it's a very practical thing. Well, maybe I should check that out before I go around telling everyone in my hometown that our old relative Elizabeth's with child. But then there's also, you know, probably the the great, uh, you know, some degree of anxiety, some degree of, uh, I don't know what just happened. Even though I know what just happened, I still can't quite believe what just, I was just told. uh, In her haste. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? What What a joyous moment that must have been for those two who found themselves in... Almost what it had to seem like uh, until it happened impossible situations, right? You, you can imagine Mary's joy and relief in seeing that what the angel Gabriel had told to her was true about her relative Elizabeth. And so, too, you have to imagine the great joy in Elizabeth's uh, faith that she had the privilege to offer this greeting to the mother of, as she puts it, my Lord. So that she knows, as she's filled with the Holy Spirit already, that this is the Lord. That this is God. That this is the Son of God who would redeem his people. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that w- there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. <laughs> I like to picture that she's elbowing Zechariah at that time when she says, Blessed is the one who believes what's been spoken to her. As he sits there still mute because he could not believe <laughs> what had have been uh, spoken to her. But, of course, we don't have that, so that's just my imagination. But I like to think that there probably was a little ribbing there at some point. Like, why couldn't you just have been like Mary? And <laughs> just believed what you were told by the angel. Um, But blessed is she who believed that there would be fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. In this section of Luke, we get the fullest um, picture of God's direct words to Mary. And we also get, uh, I think, a very great proclamation, Elizabeth's proclamation, that we should consider Mary uh, to have that special place, just like we consider St. Paul, just like we consider St. Mark, St. Andrew, St. John, St. Peter, uh, and while they were all different in terms of who, how they were chosen, what their backgrounds were, what they were to do, they were all part of God's plan of salvation for his people, which continues today, right, that we rely on what these people, uh, how God worked through them. And we're going to get into that with Luke, but I think it's a great reminder that as we begin the study with Luke, as we continue it throughout the summer, that we're not just reading about you know, something that has no impact on us because it happened a long time ago, but these, this is the, the special, the set-apart way that God planned His salvation for His people. And as His people, we can rejoice and be very glad uh, in that, even if we're about to approach the Christmas readings in mid-June. So... <laughs> All right, any other, it'll be Christmas in June. Any other uh, questions, comments? There is a lot. And I, I, will, I will let uh, Pastor Thomas know that we, I was only able to briefly touch on it. Um, I fulfilled reading everything I printed out for you, so at least I feel like I got through. But he'll touch on that further than um, starting next Sunday. Well, let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we come to you thankful for the way that you brought your salvation to this world. We pray that like Mary, we may have the faith to believe uh, whatever word you say to us, uh, to believe in your son for our salvation and to trust in your holy and great name. Uh, We pray that you would continue to guide and keep us safe as we go about the summer and that in all we do, we would glorify your holy name. And it's in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.